This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. I love a good engagement story. I always want to know, where were you? Did you know it would happen? Who picked out the ring? And my engagement story is a little unusual in that, as some of you might know from this podcast, I had given my husband an ultimatum. And on the last day, we went out to breakfast. And in the middle, he leans over and he says, I'm very nervous because I'm going to ask you to marry me. And he opens up this box. And I look at the ring and I just think to myself, oh, that is so not the ring that I wanted. But of course, I didn't want to say anything to him. And he looked at me and he laughed and he goes, don't worry, it's fake. Get whatever you want, which I actually found to be very romantic. But that was a long time ago. Now, there are a whopping 25% of 40-year-old Americans who have never been married, which is an all-time high, according to Pew Research. And according to Knott's 2022 Real Wedding Study, couples spend an average of $5,800 on an engagement ring. So with all the different companies out there vying for your engagement ring dollars, how does a business target couples at the exact right moment when they're ready to buy a ring? Well, my guest today... Jenna Drosos knows. She's the CEO of Signet Jewelers, the world's largest diamond retailer. And when she took over as CEO six years ago, she made a pivot into data that studied couples and what leads them to get engaged. She's been credited with pulling America's largest jeweler out of a long slump, has more than 30 years of executive leadership experience in the consumer goods, beauty, and healthcare industries, and has been recognized as one of Fortune 50's most powerful women in business, among other awards. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Karen. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to speak with you. Let's just start with the beginning of your incredible career. I know you did your undergraduate at the University of Georgia and an MBA from Wharton. And actually, as I was researching this, I found two interesting things we have in common. We overlapped at Wharton at exactly the same time. You, I think, were probably in Vance Hall while I was in Steinberg Dietrich. <laughs> probably. And we have the same birthday. Oh, how about that? So back to your MBA. When you started there, were you planning on becoming a CEO one day? You know, one of the things I loved in college was the opportunity that a big university gives you for leadership. 
and I was able to take advantage of that. I was a leader in a number of campus organizations, and it taught me that I really enjoy working with a group of people to set a vision, to put plans in place, and to affect change. And so I thought that when I went to grad school, I would be able to learn different disciplines. I was a finance major undergrad. I was interested in learning more about management, about marketing. And so I was able to, I think, round out a bit my knowledge. And then when I left Wharton, I went to P&G. I worked in the brand management area originally. I, I always laugh and say I started at the floor of the company because I was working on floor cleaners. Spick and span was my first assignment. But what I loved about P&G was that as a leader in marketing, you were the hub of the wheel. And so you really could learn to be a good general manager over time. So that was my goal, both coming out of Georgia, going to Wharton, and then choosing P&G for my first career stop. So P&G, there must be something in the water there, because I think I read something like 10% of CEOs have been employees of P&G. So I know you had your own meteoric rise there. Tell us about that ultimately ending with you at just about the top. Well, P&G was a very good fit for me. It's a purpose-based company, very principled in decision-making. I can say that in my 25 years there, I always felt very comfortable that my integrity was whole as I was making business decisions. It's also a company that values innovation and creativity, which I believe is something I was able to bring. I have a deep passion for understanding consumer needs for mapping a category, for understanding what consumers want that they can't get today and how we might be able to bring that to them with research and development. I really, I think it was a, a great fit for me from the beginning. I also learned to be a very data-based leader. Data is a great equalizer. It allows people who are young in their careers to have just as much impact on an organization as someone who maybe has more stripes. And in an organization that doesn't use data, judgment often rules. In an organization that does, you're able to make a great impact early in your career. And I enjoyed doing that at P&G. So I understand one of your very big successes there was Olay, and you were sort of tasked with, okay, do something with this. Yes. Well, I graduated from business school in 87. So you, you and I, as you said, overlapped. That was the year that P&G bought Richardson Vicks. And Richardson Vicks had some great brands. Pantene was one that I ultimately worked on, which we grew from the bottle that you could buy in department stores with a little gold cap. We grew it to be the number one shampoo brand in the world. Band of Soleil was a fun one. I worked on that at one point, but Olay was a brand that really had such tremendous potential. It was a little old fashioned though. It was, you know, a little under $200 million in sales, really just your grandmother's pink beauty fluid. If I took the cap off of one today and we all smelled it, you would think probably of your grandmother. But there was an opportunity to use the equity of that brand and the power of P&G's research and development and distribution capabilities to build a much bigger brand and company. And over time, I was part of a team that was able to take it from being a $200 million business to the number one skincare brand in the world and over $2.5 billion in sales. That's pretty extraordinary. Let's switch now to your next big endeavor that people you probably know best known for, Signet. When you took over in 2017, the company was in a difficult place. 
it was known to be a place that was hostile to women. There were accusations of harassment. There were a number of business issues. Primarily, I think that was the three largest subsidiaries, K, Jared's, and Zales, were sort of blending together and cannibalizing the customer base instead of expanding the pie. And then they weren't very data-driven, as you like, and also seemed to sort of be slow in direct-to-consumer. That's a lot of things to deal with. I'm maybe leaving some out. But what was your job starting from day one? How did you take on this huge task? Well, if I dial you back just a little bit, when I was running the global beauty business for Procter & Gamble, so I had progressed up the ranks and was at that time running the roughly $12 billion P&G beauty business. So all the different categories of skincare, hair care, hair color, deodorants, all of that. I decided to leave P&G after 25 years, and I did that in order to be an entrepreneur. And what I felt was that I had been an entrepreneur building and being part of a team to build a beauty company inside a soap and diaper company, but I thought maybe I can be a real entrepreneur. And so I went out and I ran a startup company for four years, which was a great experience. I mean, from going, going from a resource-rich environment to one where I had to worry about making payroll, you know, every Friday was a different experience. And all that time I had been on the board of Signet from when I was at P&G through my entrepreneurial experience. My team and I grew our startup company more than tenfold. We sold it to the market leader. It was a nice exit for the employees, for the company, the technology, and for the shareholders. And Signet, as you mentioned, was falling on some tougher times. And so some of my director colleagues said to me, hey, your background looks a lot like what we're looking for to take us and lead us to the next generation. So after consideration, I was selected to come into the CEO job. And the first thing that I did was really talk to the people. I went on a listening tour. What I have found over time and what I knew about Signet, because I had been on the board, was that it was a company full of smart, talented people who had great ideas. And I thought if I could wrap my arms around the best of those ideas and really empower people to begin bringing those to life, that would be a great starting point. And so the listening tour you went, I mean, there's, it's a huge company. So there's thousands of locations. And yes, how much time did you spend doing that? I did it actually quite quickly. I mean, it took me about six months to get our first transformation strategy in place with the team. We called it Path to Brilliance. But that strategy came from listening to people across the organization. I was in stores all over the United States, which is our biggest market. I was in stores in Canada, where we are also the number one jewelry company. I was in the UK, where we have two leading jewelry brands. I was in Botswana where we have a cutting and polishing facility and where diamonds are mined. I went to Tel Aviv, where our newest acquisition, a startup company that was digitally native, James Allen, was located. And I really took time with leaders from every part of the business, down in the distribution center, people who worked in our diamond room, sorting, grading diamonds merchants who were choosing jewelry for our different banners. I spent a lot of time with different people in our organization. And as I formed ideas, I shared those ideas. Hopefully, still to this day, we have very good communication in our company up and down our teams and cross-functionally. I, I like to 
think of myself more as a, a spider web leader where I'm connecting people to each other to solve important business problems as opposed to a hub and spoke where everything has to come to me for a decision to then go back out. And so I started that quite early and I found that ideas really began to flow and we wrapped our minds around what we thought it would take to transform this company. Addressing the part of the three brands that you are now have rather distinct at the time were sort of merging together, how did you go about transforming them? Well, as you know, as you know from my P&G background, running portfolio businesses has really been a hallmark in my career. What makes Pantene different from Head and Shoulders, different from Herbal Essence, is at the end of the day, not that different from what should make Kay, different from Zales, different from Jared, different from Blue Nile or Banter by Piercing Pagoda. It's understanding consumer needs understanding the different journeys that customers go on and then differentiating your brand based on those different factors. So in the world of jewelry, there are three primary customer journeys. There's the bridal journey, which is all about choosing an engagement ring, choosing a wedding band, and then ultimately getting your bridal jewelry ready for the wedding, maybe giving gifts to your groomsmen, your bridesmaids. That's one journey. That's the one that Signet plays in the most. About half of our sales are in the bridal journey. A second one is gifting. It could be romantic gifting to your partner for an anniversary. It could be sentimental gifting to a friend for their birthday. It could be a sorry I screwed up or just because kind of a gift, which does happen in the jewelry industry. But gifting is another journey. And you can imagine that the motivations of those two journeys are quite different. And then there's the self-purchase journey, which is actually the largest amount of category sales. And that's, wow, I love those earrings. And I think they sure would look good when I'm doing a podcast tomorrow and, you know, <laughs> also going to be on air. I think this necklace would really sparkle. I mean, those are self-purchase kind of journeys. I think, you know, what I was able to bring with the team here was a passion for understanding everything we possibly can about our customers, those journeys they go on, the motivations, and then we use those vectors to really differentiate our businesses. So I'm interested in that self-gifting. My sister, she gave herself a really nice watch engraved to Wendy, love Wendy, which I always loved that idea. Who is that customer that, which you said is the biggest part? It's a very broad customer. I mean, people buy jewelry to reward themselves. They buy it to show love to themselves. I think I deserve a great watch or whatever, but they also buy jewelry as an accessory because it helps to make a statement about who they are. The same way you might choose a bag or your wardrobe or even your hair, how you do your hair. It is a statement about you and how you see yourself. So I think within self-purchase, there are a lot of different motivations, and it is increasingly both women and men. One of the fastest growing parts of the jewelry market now is men's self-purchase. Hmm. Okay. Now, you said about creating these three brands, and how long did it take before you kind of got some traction and you really felt like, okay, we're on the right track, we're making progress? Well, I think it's we are continually learning, continually evolving. One of the areas that we have invested in significantly is data. And I've talked a little bit about some of our consumer data that is increasingly allowing us to personalize our marketing messages 
For example, if your 10th wedding anniversary is coming up, then we might be marketing to you about engagement presents, about the gifting journey. Hopefully, we're not marketing to you about do you want to get engaged because our data is good enough to help us personalize and differentiate those messages. Mm -hmm. Another area that we've really invested in is digital. After COVID, now more than 80% of jewelry customers begin their shopping journey online. So they're going online to see what's available. What can I afford for my budget? What styles do I like? That kind of thing. Although more than 80% of people start their journey there, only about 20% of jewelry sales are actually done online. So a lot of people then go into a store to hear the expertise of our jewelry consultants to understand a little bit more about diamonds or about gold and do I like 14 karat better or is 18 karat better for me? That kind of thing. I think once we invested in all of those things, brand differentiation, a world-class digital experience and data that really helped us to communicate differently with customers, we've begun to see good traction. Mm -hmm. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about was mall versus off mall. You transformed the business somewhat. What was the thought behind that? We have. I, the first thing that we recognized is that we needed to get smaller to get bigger. We had too many underperforming stores in our fleet. There were malls across the country that were not performing well, where customers were no longer excited to go. And so we closed about 20% of the stores in our fleet. Now, that can be a scary decision, but in our case, we really saw it as one that would enable us to get rid of underperforming asset heavy parts of our portfolio to invest in new customer experiences that would help us to transform the company. So it was decisions like that that then gave us the fuel to be able to invest in differentiating our brands and in driving our digital experience. At the same time that we closed a number of those doors, we started to move stores also off mall whereas we would have been closer to 70% of our sales in malls early on when I started, we're now less than 50% of our sales in malls. And we have several banners, Jared, Diamonds Direct, for example, which are completely off mall. And we have James Allen and Blue Nile, which are predominantly online businesses. So we've really, I think, made a distinct channel play also as a way to differentiate our jewelry brands. All right, so we're going to have to take a quick break, and then I want to get into some of your more interesting data. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, and we're back with Gina Drosos, CEO of Signet Jewelers. 
I have heard about your fantastic data that you have around couples. And since this is around Valentine's Day, I'd love to hear some of the markers that you look for that help you understand when a couple is ready to get engaged. What are some positive signs? What are some negative signs that maybe the relationship's in trouble? What do you see? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, about half of Signet's business is centered in the bridal journey. So the journey of couples choosing an engagement ring and then wedding bands, should they want to commemorate their relationship with those milestone pieces of jewelry. And so we've made it, therefore, our job to understand everything we possibly can about the journey that couples go on. For example, we know that on average in the United States, it is 3.25 years between when a couple meets and when they get engaged. That was a very important data point for us to understand because during COVID, when we were all in lockdown, people who weren't already dating weren't meeting. So they, they weren't meeting at the same rate. So we predicted that three years post-COVID lockdowns, we would see a lull in engagements. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. In 2023, there were 25% fewer engagements than in a typical year. Now, the good news for Signet certainly is that we hit the trough of that in November and we have begun to see couples begin to get engaged again. It will take three years to get back to a normalized level of engagement. So that pig in the python is halfway through. It's like the pig in the python and it is now we've passed through the trough and we're on a three-year journey back. We also invested in data to get to know couples and all the milestones that happened during that 3.25 years. And we identified 45 trackable milestones that we can separate into four different phases of dating. For example, and we've all dated, so this you can understand how this would be. I mean, there are certain milestones that happen sooner than others. For example, you often meet each other's friends before you meet each other's families. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit lower pressure situation. Right. You frequently go to a concert or a sporting event together before you go on a romantic trip together, right? It's not as big a commitment, not as big a cash outlay, so it makes sense that you would do those in that order. And what we found is that while not all couples hit all 45 of the milestones that we track, we found that once a couple has experienced 25 to 30 of these milestones, they are statistically significantly more likely to get engaged. What that helps us to do then is to personalize our marketing so that we can help them as they're beginning this process of trying to decide, should I buy a natural diamond or should I consider lab created? Do I like emerald cut or would I prefer round? All of those different things, we can begin to provide information at the right time for those couples. And is there anything like they got in their first fight and so one of them gets a gift that's not an engagement ring and clearly not, so it doesn't send the wrong message, but some, like earrings or something. Is that one of the milestones? Yes. So one of the milestones is giving a gift of jewelry because that tends to be a very meaningful gift. It expresses love and a meaningful thing. And one of my favorite ones is pretty similar to what you just said. It's breaking up and getting back together again. Now, like I said, not all couples hit every one of the milestones, but that is one of the 45 that we track. Now, you're married. Had you thought about any of this before you got married? 
I did not. <laughs> no, I, I didn't really think that there would be someone out there who was trying to help me make my jewelry shopping journey easier by understanding what stage of dating relationship I'm in. But I'll tell you what, now that I understand it, and now that we understand it as a company, I think we really are able to make people's lives much easier, getting them the right information at the right time. Okay, it's Valentine's Day. That must be a big one for you as well. It is. It's a big holiday. It's one where people start shopping reasonably early. There are a lot of people who've already bought their Valentine's Day gifts. And then, like other holidays, there are plenty of people who are also last-minute shoppers who come in on Valentine's Day looking for that very special gift to go home with. All right. So my niece recently got engaged to her boyfriend. She was the one who proposed. Have you seen a change in the way engagements are done? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the most fascinating parts of my job. I love getting to hear about how love stories are changing. It is a much more common practice now than it was when I was first getting engaged or certainly for my parents for women to propose to men. It's also quite common for one partner in the couple to propose to the other and then for the other couple to propose back so that both have proposed to each other, which I think is super interesting. And then one of the things that a lot of people ask me that is a misnomer is they say, you know, I've, I don't think this generation is as interested in getting engaged as previous generations. And actually, that's not at all true. Gen Z is more interested in getting engaged than millennials. So we're seeing an increase. What they are doing, though, is often getting engaged later when they're a bit more financially secure and almost 20% of Gen Z feels comfortable with engagement as a permanent state. So in other words, they want to get engaged. They want that commitment. They want to express their love to someone else and make that a declaration, but they don't necessarily feel like they need a legal document or that they need to get married in order to cement that. So it's not about the wedding or an expense of a wedding. It can be. I think still predominantly, most couples both get engaged and get married and most often couples celebrate their wedding with a, some kind of gathering of their friends. During COVID, we saw a lot of that happening with very small groups in a backyard. We saw the number of engagements stay normalized during COVID. As I mentioned, it's last year where we saw the COVID impact of engagements, but it stayed normalized during COVID. What we saw go down during COVID were weddings. And then the year post-COVID, was the highest number of weddings in 40 years. Wow. So there are societal things that impact how people think about both engagement and weddings. You've done a remarkable job. You've turned around this company. I did happen to look at the pandemic low stock price, just did researching you. It was about five and a half dollars, give or take. The stock now is somewhere near 100 or so. I don't know where it is right now. So that's really an extraordinary ride. And congratulations to you for really pulling off the original sort of reinvention and then also surviving the pandemic. But let me ask you sort of a broader question about your career, which has obviously been really, really successful. Are there any mistakes that you've made where either it was operationally or it was with your own career, anything like that, that women could learn something from? 
Absolutely. First, thank you so much for acknowledging our transformation at Signet. I won't take credit for it. It's really a team effort that I've been proud to lead. I feel great about the stock price because I think that's good for our investors, but it's also good for our employees who are investors. And if they can send their kids to college now or whatever, then I, that gives me a lot of gratitude. So I, I do feel great about that for our employees. But back to the question you asked me, making mistakes, I have made so many. It is hard to count. And it is one of the things that I tell my team all the time is that I think you can learn more from failures sometimes than you do from successes. Totally believe that. And the reason that you do is because we beat ourselves up about the things that we do wrong. And so it sticks with you. I think maybe a mistake that I've made and advice I would give to other people is beat yourself up a little less about those mistakes because you did learn from them and it gives you the chance to make things better and remember a little bit more your successes because that's the muscle memory that you want to have in your mind. It's like being an athlete. You want to remember the great serve that you hit, not the double fault. You want to remember your drive straight down the fairway as a golfer, not the one that you shanked over into the bushes. And it's the same thing in business. I think we want to create muscle memory about things that we do well and play to our strengths. One of my strengths, I hope, is similar to how I started at Signet, which is listening. It's really being able to pull ideas from different parts of an organization and to make connections, to find a theme that really seems like it will make a difference and then lead us forward on that theme. Our digital journey has been one of supply chain such that we now use algorithms to pull inventory from the place in our store fleet where it's been sitting the longest. That's helped us create a cash flow that has allowed us to invest more capital in the business to make our e-com sites better. So I can make a connection of things like that when I listen to a supply chain leader, I listen to a store manager, I listen to my inventory team, and I think about how can I bring all these things together? If that's one of my superpowers, then I would say to everyone, find your superpower and lean into it. That's the best way that you can be a leader. And then surround yourself with people who have superpowers that you don't. We all have blind spots. That's a definition. And we cannot see our own blind spots. I can't see what's going on behind me, but you're facing me. And so you can. And if we work together, we will be much more agile, much more innovative. We'll have much more fun working together because we've both contributed. And I think that's just a powerful lesson. So let me ask you, when you got to that enormous role, Global Beauty, at, at Procter & Gamble, what did that feel like? And that's a lot of ranks to climb up to get there. <laughs> well, I think for me, maybe it felt a little unreal. As you start your career, you look at people levels up from you in the organization and you think, if I ever get there, I'll have all the answers. And then you get there and you think to yourself, wow, I need to go talk to people down in my organization because they have all the answers. And so I think what, what you realize is that the power of an organization is how well you communicate 
from the bottom to the top across the organization, how well you share information, how well you work as a team, how much you respect each other's strengths and opportunities, and how you come together with a common mission. Not one person ever has all the answers. The answers are distributed and innovation is distributed. And when we can bring that together to achieve a common goal or a common mission, that's when uh, magic really happens. So you are an answer collector and curator. I think that that's right. And, and more and more so. I mean, when you're young in your career, you're a doer, right? I mean, you're learning your craft or you're acting in that way. But I think in my cases, I've progressed up to different levels of leadership. I still believe that it's the people on the front lines who know how our business happens. I Just two days ago, I was out in stores talking with store team members. I was not at the nicest mall in the city on purpose because I wanted to see the challenges that team members have when traffic is slower. I mean, how are they attracting people? How should the assortment be different? Because we're across the country. So I think making sure that you're learning from people who are in touch with your business every single day is critically important, more so now than ever before in my career. So when you go to a store like that, do they know it's you? Or are you like undercover boss? <laughs> what's, what is that interaction like? I can never be undercover boss because I'm a big communicator. And so I do videos for my my organization all the time. I do videos every quarter to recognize what we call MVPs. And that's a double entendre. It's most valuable player, but it's also minimally viable product. It's the idea of things don't have to be perfect to experiment and that we should be a company that's always innovating. So I find people across the company and across the country, across the world of Signet who are doing innovative things and I recognize them every quarter and I do a video about them. I do kickoff videos. I have, we're on a retail fiscal year. So the end of our year is this weekend and then we're kicking off our new fiscal year. And so I was just filming last week a video for my whole organization about our priorities in the year ahead and about what I need them to help focus on with me to bring us all together. So no, I, I get to the front of a store and you Usually, whether they, even if they don't know I'm coming, they look up and they say, oh, Jenna, we know you. So that must be very motivating for them. I mean, you care enough to go to their store or wherever you are. Well, it's a two-way street. I get energy from being out in our stores. We're a retail company and our business happens, 80% of it is happening right in the stores. And I get ideas. I see what's not working. My promise to them is if they spend 20 minutes with me telling me about their business, then I will write down their issues. I'll take pictures of the TV screen that isn't working in the corner, or I'll take pictures of the display of watches where they wish they had more and then I'll come back to the home office and I'll work on it for them. So I think we have a nice give and take when I'm in a store because I can help and you know, they can help me understand and I can hopefully help them get what they need to be successful. You are in a unique spot, a woman of a very big company, and I know you have a son and a daughter. Do you have different messages for each of them? 
I think my messages for them are largely the same. I am very proud that they both have chosen careers that help them to do something meaningful in the world. That's how I've always thought about my career. It might seem like running a beauty company, running a pharmacogenomics company in the mental health space, so connecting patients with the right medicine for them, which was my startup company or running a jewelry company. Those might seem quite different, but for me, the red thread is that these are all categories that build confidence in people, that make their lives better, that, you know, when you can express your deepest emotions to someone you care so much about, that's a special thing. And when we can be part of that with beautiful jewelry, that every time your loved one looks at it, they remember the emotion with which you gave it to them. That's a very special thing. So I'm proud my son is an Episcopal priest, and so he's doing a lot of good in his community. And my daughter is is a strategist with Gates Foundation. So she is looking around the world at things that she can make better. And that's what I try to do. I try to do that from a company mission standpoint, but I also try to do that in the lives of all of our employees every day. So my advice to them is to lean into that. I mean, we're here to make a difference for each other. We're here to hopefully leave this world a bit better than the one we found. And so continue to lean into that as your number one mission. And then probably particularly to my daughter, I share a specific piece of advice, which is one that I love that Mamie Earl Sells has said, which is as women, we need to lift as we climb. It's not enough to be successful yourself. It's important that you create a pathway for success for people who come behind you, particularly women to women. Uh, so I try to do that for all of my employees, but I am particularly conscious about sharing leadership lessons that I've learned with women. If you know what we've seen going on uh, in universities over the last several months is any indication, it still is difficult for women in positions of power. And I think we have to be kind to each other. We have to share leadership lessons with each other. And most certainly we have to lift as we climb. Well, that's a very good and uplifting message. All right, we're going to have to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Lightning Round. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with the lightning round. Okay, this is Would You Rather, just the only challenge, just answer top of your head. What do you think? Okay, what would you rather, diamonds or pearls? Diamonds. Tennis bracelet or diamond ring? Tennis bracelet. Would you rather watch Breakfast at Tiffany's or Uncut Gems? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay. Philadelphia or Atlanta? Atlanta. Olay or any other moisturizer? Olay. Okay. Georgia peanuts or Georgia peaches? Peaches. Would you rather wake surf in the lake or surf in the ocean? Wake surf in the lake. Okay. Where does that come from? (laughs) I am a wake surfer. I love all sports, really. I just, it's a relaxation for me. That's how I unwind. And I'm fortunate to have a boat uh, that makes a wave behind it, almost like a wave that you would have in the ocean. And so once you get up on the board, you can throw the rope in and surf in USA. It's great. I can get a good soundtrack going. I can go a couple of songs around the lake. It's great fun. That sounds excellent. Okay. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Okay. What are you reading right now? All the Light We Cannot See. Yes. I just finished. It's a great, great story. It looked very, very thick to me. It is my one of my daughter's favorite books. There is now the miniseries. So I'm, I got to say, I'm sort of debating. I've heard that. I haven't seen it, but the book was fabulous. It's worth a read. All right. Okay. What have you changed your mind about in the last year? Acceleration more than color of the car. <laughs> okay. That sounds very oddly specific. <laughs> I've decided that it's fun to drive a car that goes zero to 60 reasonably quickly. And I think it's actually safer too, especially in a big city like Dallas, where you've got a lot of traffic. Right. You could just, yeah, get out of trouble quickly. Okay. Exactly. Last one. What is the best investment you've ever made in the worst investment? And any definition of investment is fine. doesn't need to be a stock or anything. Well, the best investment is in good people. It's in talent. And the worst investment that I've made was not buying Zoom pre-pandemic. I made the decision not to buy it. It was the worst investment decision I ever made. All right. Well, one could do a lot worse than that. Jenna, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy. You got a lot of jewelry to attend to. So thank you so much. Uh, It's been my pleasure. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. And thank you so much to Jenna Drosos for sharing her story of turning around a business and how she used the power of data to guide her. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. Onward.